1: What, do you need any slating here or are you just going to work No, out we're working out? out. It's okay. Okay. Yep. Okay, great.
0: Okay, well, here we are at episode three of Is This Shirt Slimming? And is it slimming, Christopher?
1: <laughs> I, wear, I wear horizontal
0: stripes. <laughs> it's all about the stripes, the direction of the stripes, directionality of stripes. We were discussing about what we we're going to talk about this week, and you mentioned about um, overdubbed percussion parts on Beatles records. Now, it could have been, this could be a number of things when he brought that up. I thought, is it um, the rumour that Paul McCartney supposedly redid Ringo's drum parts and sneaking into After Hours to do that?
1: Yeah, look, I think that rumour of Paul McCartney sneaking, I mean, we're talking about guys in their mid-twenties going behind their friends' backs and replacing their parts. There's no difference between any of the drum parts on any of the Beatles' records unless You listen to the real Paul McCartney stuff, which is uh, The Ballad of Johnny Yoko or uh, Paul McCartney's first album. And he doesn't even try to imitate Ringo. It doesn't sound anything like Ringo. He's playing his own parts. It's a a tragic rumor. Paul McCartney loved Ringo's playing. That's why Ringo was in the band. Paul McCartney says, when we got Ringo in, we we did the live gig. And he says, I couldn't help but turn around and smile. I mean, you know,
0: seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, the thing is about Ringo is is that he's a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed kid. And so is
1: Paul McCartney. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Two lefties in there. But um, uh, uh, have you heard about this that uh, Ringo Starr is a left-handed yes. drummer? Yeah,
1: he's a left-handed, right-handed drummer. Mm-hmm. That's what he calls himself, yeah. And so his fills always start at the wrong place because he can't lead off the same hand that everyone else does because he's been given a right-handed kit to play. And so he leads off with his left hand, which means he has to play fills a certain way. And so, yeah, he's he's limited that way, which is what makes his makes his fills sound like his.
0: Yeah, there's no one like him, is there? And, um, and also when I started doing research on this, I realised as well that uh, on their first album, George Martin actually wanted another drummer. And uh correct, and it was the band who sort of arced up and said, "No, we want Ringo, Ringo's our guy,
1: yeah, they felt good man they they like Ringo, you know, John loved Ringo, he used to hang out with him. it was these guys were friends, you know, and then they 'd hang out with each other after hours. Think about it, I mean, you know when John Lennon was off shooting uh, how I, was it how I won the war, or something like that that really bizarre. Uh, British movie where he plays a dead soldier who keeps reappearing with commentary. It was an anti-war movie. Uh, he was so bored. He was so bored on the set. He rang up said, "Ringo, what are you doing? Come out, come out. Look, they're paying for everything. Come out, <laughs> hang out with me." <laughs> so, so Ringo, Ringo never appears in the movie, and Ringo's the only trained actor mm-hmm. in the in the group, and he never appears in the movie. He's just hanging out in the back, waiting for John to come off camera. Uh, I think who was that guy? Richard something rather really bizarre. Director. Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah, he uh, did help, didn't Beatles, he? Yeah, Richard, Richard Lester. Richard Lester. I didn't know this, but apparently his his movies are significant because of some sort of cinemat cinematog- cinematological reasons why his movies are significant. So I I wasn't aware of it when I was growing up, but yeah, he's actually. Uh, more relevant to the cinema than those silly movies he made, but it's those silly movies that he made that were relevant yeah. in the way he did. I think a
0: lot of the, um, the animosity between the Beatles is all informed about their later years and the last days of the Beatles when they were falling apart, but basically they were a bunch of young guys, you know, they were in their late teens when they first started playing together and... Um, yeah, they were just um, out there having a good time.
1: And uh, I think some of the rumours about uh, good or bad uh, depended on the mood of the guy. I mean, John Lennon was a pretty... He was a barbed tongue person, and he liked to cause problems as well as as well as well highlight them. So he, he couldn't help but say there were things that were wrong because he was an outspoken, and he was a bit of a jerk. Mm. You know, he's a highly, highly intelligent, antisocial person. Mm-hmm. There's an interview, a wonderful interview, of all the Beatles on, in a front of a... Uh, I can only buy It's a two-volume book... Set of all their music, uh, which are basically they're not transcriptions, they're just reductions, and um, and there's interviews there, and uh, they, I think the question was asked of John, you know, what was it like being in a, having Ringo in the band? What was it, no, what was Ringo like as a drummer in the Beatles? And John, I think as a, I don't know whether he's being sarcastic, but see, in print things don't come across very nicely, and he says, drummer in the Beatles, he wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles, meaning that the other guys could play. But they could all play. But when it came down to it, if you watch the Let It Be movie, no matter what animosity, no matter what anger, because George resigns but finishes the album with them during that movie, it, Look, it, no matter how bad it's getting, and it's getting pretty heated, Ringo is is a stonewall. He's just there playing
0: beautifully. Mm-hmm. He, never, he never lets up. That there's a problem. Well, I think he's um he's obviously a very um, easygoing guy and just uh, I think the luckiest drummer in the world. Let's face it. <laughs>
1: like he's, and 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 he, I think he was slightly older than the guys too, so he saw beyond it.
0: You know? mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Now,
1: who, who knows when? The, who knows when the alcoholism started? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've got to say, at this point, I'm not really a Beatles guy. They don't move me yeah, as they're, other they're,
1: music. So, can you explain it to me a bit? There, there are people like you Phil, in the world, so it's not really a problem. You can you can see someone about it. Well, uh, I'm here to see you about it. <laughs> <laughs> tell me
0: where I'm here. Okay. Tell me where okay. I'm missing out.
1: Look, for instance, you you know the song Hello Goodbye. Mm-hmm. It's a single. It's not on any album. It's part of the uh, the uh, Magical Mystery Tour um, body of work. It doesn't have any devices on there hmm. in the band. They tell you it's a pop hit. Mm-hmm. During the biggest part of the song, when it should be crashing and banging, all you're hearing on the drums is tom-toms, floor tom. Yeah, yeah. Through the verses, uh, after he gets off the floor tom, Ringo's playing fills throughout all of the verses. Mm-hmm. It's the antithesis of what you would tell a drummer to do in the studio. Yet, it sounds Phenomenal. What did they know about arranging and putting these songs together? And then they finished the song off with some sort of mid Atlantic Maori groove.
0: <laughs> <You know?
1: laughs> it's like, these weren't dumb guys. There was, there was something about them. Look, you, you hear them. If you've got a lousy day, if you put the Beatles on in the background, whoever is your customer for the day will we'll walk out of the place cheerful there 's something about the Beatles that it was very hard to look it 's uh, george George Martin is actually the only guy who 's been able to explain it well. There was an engineer who was a young engineer they used to do the Beatles were the first band to do a twenty four hour lockout mm-hmm. uh, before that if you wanted to book a studio, you booked at nine till five. These guys used to go late at night, of course, but no one booked booked continually a uh, block bookout for a week right or a month or whatever. The Beatles were the first band to do that. Mm-hmm. Because of the because of the way they recorded, they wouldn't all come in together. Sometimes they'd record together, sometimes they record apart. They'd come in and overdub after they go out partying. Paul would go and see a concert; he'd feel inspired and come in and play a part on on any of this stuff. They had to have an engineer on call. Mm-hmm. So this young engineer it was his first time with this now by now very famous band, and uh, he asked George Martin, he says, uh, "Look, I've got I'm going to be on the, the back shift for the Beatles. Uh, what should I expect?" And George says, "Oh, says Paul could come in." Uh, he might do a part, might do a vocal part or something, just be ready for it. Ringo could come in, he might, might lay a percussion part down. Uh, you, might get a t- you might get two of them in there at the same time, that, that'll be good, just be ready for it. He says, but here's the thing, he says, when the four of them are there, you'll be aware of another presence. And that was the thing that George Martin said about them, he says there was something about the four of them together.
0: So this is this is part of the um, the Beatles nerdosphere. I think there's a lot of artists that have a nerdosphere around them. I mean, Bob Dylan's definitely got a nerdosphere around him. Uh, yeah. But are you a Beatles nerd? I know there's a lot of you out there. Probably.
1: <laughs> I, I can tell you, I'm not a Bob Dylan nerd. I've never have been, never will be. I just uh, can't listen to him for more than a minute, and I love everyone else doing his music, but him. You know, can't stand him. It's his personality. I just can't. I can't handle looking at him. Really, I love but his person. His so- I love Bob's
0: personality. I think he's great. See, see the, I mean? Joker, see, the Joker. The Joker. I mean? <laughs> see, I mean? yeah. <laughs> see what I mean? Barry. White's for meeting the ladies, and uh, Bob Dylan's for breaking up with them.
1: <laughs> uh, Bob Dylan was a big woman's man. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he certainly was, and he was mates with the Beatles. They were buddies. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Oh, yeah. like, they were all hanging, yeah. all
0: hanging out in the sixties together. Oh, all of them, yes. But oh, yes. Um, the Beatles. Oh. You, you mentioned to me once about um, their skills and the, 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 the different skills that uh, John and Paul brought to the Beatles. You know, Paul's music, very um, formal musical experience, and then John's uh, raw energy as well. Can you yeah, expand on that, please, as the Beatles nerd? <laughs>
1: oh, wow. Gosh, am I in the spotlight? I'm going to guess. There's, there'll be some group of nerds. There'll be some niche of nerds that are going to say I'm wrong about everything. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the problem with being in this, in this place. Uh, look, uh, John Lennon would never have been the songwriter that he was if Paul McCartney hadn't come along. Paul McCartney was a workaholic. John uh, was a brilliant man who liked to cause trouble. They all loved to have John in the studio to give his opinion because he was—he truly was an artist. It wasn't like he was a, you know, a has been or someone who needed help. He was a true artist. He knew he understood how social um, tensions worked and and the reactions to things. Looking back, of course, some of—I think—a lot of what he did socially was rather gauche and a bit a bit staged. Um, it, it, out of touch. He wasn't. He wasn't a skilled politician. That was the area he was going in. I, I think he was. I think he was way out of his depth. He was really an artist. He was really an artist. And of course, all the good artists reflect socially. He wrote great love songs. Man, John Lennon wrote phenomenal love songs. And only today, I was um, driving around, and the track came on "Girl," and that's the one where he just breathes into the microphone. oh, girls, girls. And I was laughing, I, was, I thought, this is hilarious. This is such a guy song, you know, and this is really funny. He's saying, let me tell you a story. Basically, he's saying, let me tell you a story about this chick that, that you know, I'm, I'm with at the moment. She's great. And that's the whole song. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> She's really good. <sighs> She's really good. <laughs> that's that's. And I, I'd never realized how funny it was until you sort of reach an age and go, this guy is hilarious. But this, is, but, this is, but this is a really good love song, but he's such a funny man. They, yeah, they all, every guy in the band wanted to have John's approval. That was an, an, an interesting dynamic in the band. If John gave the nod to something, they went ahead. It, it's, it's interesting, but Paul McCartney made them go to the studio because they were busy. They were working on other people's records. They used pseudonyms by the dozen. There's a book out of what they could track down of the pseudonyms and who they recorded with what they did on records, yeah, there's a book out. I've got a copy of it and there's a, I think um, there's a, if I can find it in my book collection, I think there was a CD that came with it of some of the recordings that were done under assumed names. So, yeah, and that's all, that's all four of them. It's not just Paul and John. And George was prolific in, in recordings, as, you know, as, a, as an outside. So they were neat, people used them and they couldn't just appear because of their contracts. So people would book them secretly, probably direct, and they'd go in and, and put their stuff
0: down because they were hit makers. You know? Tell me about um, skiffle music and the Beatles <laughs> I just
1: <laughs> what? I just saw a face I can't forget this time of place where we just met that was a British music that happened before the Beatles it was really popular my old man's a dust man all that sort of stuff Lonnie Donegan was the guy and they all copied him God, I mean it's great music it's just you know it's just a pub rock basically for, for the 60s it's, it was sped up folk music you know uh, it, was, it was sort of British country music you know and then when if you if you listen to um, uh, uh, Falling I'm Falling I just saw a face I just can't, I can't forget if you put Put help! Straight after that track, it doesn't sound like the same hit. It's actually a skiffle song as well. <laughs> help! I need somebody help. I mean, you can you could do a skiffle set and throw that in. <laughs> it's the same tempo. It's got basic chords, you know. But um, musically, was what was
0: going on with skiffle?
1: What was going on with yeah. skiffle? It was British country and western. I, I mean, and just need an acoustic, it, gu- acoustic guitar and a loud voice. That's it. That's it there was nothing about the rhythm
0: yeah. or anything was just uh...
1: oh it was it was it was a two four groove yep. and you can you could put uh, what was that the wash basin and stuff with yeah it, washboard and and, yeah. Broom, broomstick 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 bass and as long as it, as long as you got that that was basically
0: it so sort of like two two and, step yeah, of the 50s
1: yeah and it was and it was comedy music because the guys would write poetry songs like my old man's a dustman who wears a dustman's hat who wears called blimey trousers and lives in the council flat oh you know all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that's all that's all from that that period and the beatles they loved it that was their kids that was the kids music of the day you know
0: so could anyone else have been the beatles but the beatles look
1: i I really like the mersey beat sound i think it was the right guys at the right time they were all very photogenic look at the other bands at the time they weren't photogenic alan price was an actor right and and the other who was the other guy there was a couple of guys in the animals that that were kind of they were good looking Mm. but the whole band of the beatles were photogenic they were outspoken they were witty I think it's really the right time and the right place. and But the, the funny thing I found about the Beatles, Paul McCartney testifies to it. He says, well, we were we thought Latin music was going to be the music of the day. That's why we wrote so many Latin tunes in the early days. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, we did all these covers and we wrote all these things that had the Latin beat and we put, we put all the percussion behind it because we thought, okay, Latin music, that's what's happening in Europe. We really like Latin music. That's going to be the next thing. Let's write a whole heap of Latin music. And at the side, while we were writing that, we had this rock music that we were writing as well." And he says, "There we were, investing all our time in this Latin music. At the same time, this music that we weren't really too concerned about was becoming the hit music of the future. Mm. They didn't see it They didn't see it coming. So who could be the next Beatles? If the Beatles couldn't see it coming? But um, you know, they, didn't, get, they didn't. They didn't even have. They didn't have their finger on the pulse, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a it's a difficult question.
0: You know, yeah, yeah. But
1: I think it's an easy, it's an easy question, but it's impossible. But to it's answer.
0: also the, the other part of the the second part of that question, of course, is the musicality that allowed them to develop into, you know, the later albums and your you know your much more um, experimental albums and dare I say, concept albums.
1: Well, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I can say it again.
0: Concept albums.
1: I, d- I don't think there would be a uh, Dark Side of the Moon if it wasn't for Abbey Road and Sgt. Peppers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Beatles wouldn't be- have Sgt. Peppers if it wasn't for the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we wouldn't have the monkeys with that great. With it, like right at the end of their career, after all these hits, they had probably their best. My favourite song of theirs, which is the Porpoise song, mm-hmm. wouldn't have existed without the Beatles.
0: Written by Carole King, funnily enough, the Porpoise Abs- song.
1: Absolutely, oh. absolutely. <laughs> and Nilsson, Nelson who wrote a lot of hits for the for the Beatles, uh, for the monkeys, mm-hmm. could have written hits for the Beatles. So, uh, that was wasn't a Freudian slip. He could have written hits for the Beatles, and he ended up being good mates with John Lennon as well. Drinking, drinking buddies, and, uh, I believe.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: I think, did, did we mention how he disappeared from view in another I podcast? I don't think so,
0: but tell us the story again. <laughs> Fake news alert. This story is too good to be true. Oh, okay. So he's
1: mates with John Lennon, and anyway, so I think it won- he eventually he passed away. I don't think that's—I don't think that's got anything to do with John, but uh, he was a pretty yeah. He was a hard drinking party boy, and um, Nilsson actually did a record uh, which was released with an eight millimeter film welcoming the beatles to america this is how big the beatles had become so anyway later in his career after he'd created all this music and he'd written all this stuff for the booth for the monkeys uh, on on the on his slab uh, after he was after he'd gone to the, his maker his body was on the slab in the morgue and there was an earthquake the earth opened up and his body was taken into the crack in the in, in the building, and they never found his body again. <laughs> I reckon. I reckon we've
0: got to check that story. That just sounds too, too good a story. Swallowed. I just hope it's true. I hope it's true.
1: So, <laughs> I suppose the best way is to show me a photo of uh, of Nilsen's gravestone. Thanks. <laughs>
0: 1964 was when they came to Australia. Now, my, yeah. my so I was six years old. You would have been. Yeah. You would have been seven, six and seven. a half, perhaps something like that. Seven. Oh, years Seven,
1: I think, I think it was seven.
0: My uncle was a policeman, and he was uh, part of the security for the Beatles, and he went to every show in... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sydney, <laughs> to, see, <laughs> to see them. And I said, sure. I remember, I remember seeing, saying to him, what were they like? And he said, I don't know. I was wearing earplugs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, because of the girls, because of all the screaming. Yeah,
0: and I don't think PA systems were what they are these days. Nah. And those days, no. Well,
1: there, there was no PA's. Mm. The, 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 yeah, it shows. There's no. There's no PA. Well, I think it's just the vocal PA in the in the in house. Yeah, yeah. And it was just the on stage on stage guitar amps and
0: an acoustic drum kit and um and the the PA that they used to announce the wrestling at the stadium in Sydney. <laughs> the That's highest quality played. of audio for <laughs> for all the wrestlers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now, can I can I just bring it back here a little bit to Ringo because you know there's yeah, plenty yeah, of the yeah. stuff about John and yeah. Paul, but um, now th- he's been a much maligned as a drummer. And uh, I was been doing a bit of research in here, and um, someone asked Buddy Rich what um, he thought of Ringo's playing, and he said it's adequate, but apparently <laughs> in Buddy Rich's world. That's the highest compliment he gives a drummer.
1: <laughs> that sounds right. Ringo was listened to by the Motown drummers because he was playing. He was a drummer in the pop band on the planet that were, of course, doing covers of Motown tunes. But what Ringo had that the Motown drummers didn't have was he had this ability to play that snare right in the middle of the beat, mm-hmm. no matter where the song was. And they recognised it. Mm. They recognised that They could hear it on the songs that they knew that they that the Beatles reinterpreted and sent back onto the airwaves, they could hear this drummer cutting through right in the beautifully in the middle of two and four, because you couldn't hear the bass drums in a lot of those recordings. Ringo was the first guy we used to, the, in Abbey Road where they started to record the bass drum properly, but um, yeah, but uh, yeah. So Ringo had this ability to cut right in the centre of the beat, which the Motown drummers really admired. What did, weren't
0: they able to? You know, didn't they cut right in the middle of the beat? That
1: but the, but well no because they had it was a, there was a different there was the be, the beats are wider in Motown. if you have a listen they're they're a lot wider and a lot more forgiving but that's because they have a different they they come from a big band um, a big band upbringing so they they play a lot of jazz so the, their understanding of where the one and the well with, sorry we're not talking James Brown where, where the two and the four is is different to the British who would have been listening to marching bands. And uh, and those horn bands that the the British were listening to, with the tuba lines, which Paul McCartney studied, it was just a different school, um, and, and and skiff. You know, there was just a different interpretation. It was a very. It was much more British, you know. A, so it was a formal a formal two
0: and four, as opposed to the swing of the American rhythm yeah. sections. Is that would yeah. that be fair to say?
1: I, I'd I'd say that would be the thing that stood out about Ringo, but he had a swing inside his playing. His hi hat was never. It was hardly ever straight, even on the straightest tunes. He had this. He had this he always leant towards this triplet. But he was the best drummer in town. Mm. You know? So we're we're hearing the best of Liverpool in this one guy. That was he was the best guy in the town. And he you know, how many records did he do with these guys? Ten? Twelve? I mean I can't remember how many Beatles records there are. I should know. <laughs> you
0: I'll are suppose. the Beatles nerd. These
1: are, There, there, these these are, yeah, that's exactly right. If they asked this in the pub, I'd get it wrong. Because you just, just, why would you put a number on it? It's just all good. But uh, yeah, he's the main drummer. He's the guy. He got it right. Paul McCartney's bass lines sound lighter than air Mm. because of Ringo's playing behind them, because Paul loved his playing.
0: So, look, I'm just reading this uh, website here at the moment about. uh, Uh, A drummer's perspective in defense of Ringo. Ringo was adequate for the music he was playing, and the music he was playing was great pop music. Early on in my rhythmic life, I found it difficult to figure out Ringo's style when it came to his fills and how he returned to the groove. If you don't catch, if you didn't catch Ringo on a live TV show, there was no way to relay what he did, to visually analyze what was going on. To me, the sticking of his fills didn't logically flow around the drum set as I perceived they should. Something was off, illogical. It wasn't until much later I realised that Ringo was left-handed and was playing on a right-handed set There was just something off about his style, but it all seemed to fit the music.
1: There's, there's something about Ringo's groove. I mean, he had so many good Latin grooves already under his belt when he joined the Beatles. You know, he was, he was a Latin aficionado. They never threw on percussion, overdub percussion. Uh, that didn't that didn't make sense. It didn't fit. Now I've studied a lot of Latin music, you know, and I can't help it. If something, if there's a Latin figure I know will fit on something, I'll definitely put it on, you know. And they and I'm I'm hearing now, listening back again, because I've never I never noticed the percussion parts on the Beatles. It was always the guitars and the voice, the chords, you know. And then I started listening really close, and there's a lot of percussion. There's a lot of there's an awful lot of tambourine. There's congas and bongos. There's a lot. There's a lot of cowbell. They've got two cowbells they use throughout all their records. There's this big governor <laughs> that they use, and then and then there's a lighter one they use. Uh, there's a, there's some shakers appear for a while, and and sometimes they use a st- the tambourine skin as well to get the, to get certain slides and things. Um, they're the main things. Claves. Uh, there's a couple of wood blocks, but a lot of clave as well. It's uh, it's and these are overdub, and these are pure Latin instruments. You know that big cowbell is from Cha 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 music. That's where that's where you hear the exact same cowbell. They never
0: gave up. They never so, gave up on Latin music. It was going to be the next big thing.
1: <laughs> they never gave. Up. But that's that's the whole point. Why did Ringo slot in so well? Mm-hmm. Because you know Paul Paul wanted to have that that, in this, that that he wanted to be relevant to Europe. You know, I think the American thing came later, but this European thing. My parents grew up. Dancing to Latin music, this this European Latin music.
0: This drummer is talking about. Um, um, was there a song called No Reply? Yeah, yeah Ringo had a, yeah. Ringo had a grasp of Latin rhythms. On various tracks, you can find overdubbed clave, bongos, maracas, cowbell, etc. He freely used bolero grooves on "And I And I Love Her" and "Till There Was You." Um, cha cha grooves. I will please please me. And I feel fine. You can easily hear the echo of Ray Charles What I Say in the drum part, which is a fast conga tumbao pattern adapted to the drum set. And uh, no reply, there's a a smooth Brazilian bossa nova. Groove on the verses. Yeah, it's, yeah.
1: He's play, he's, I know that groove. That's a three-two clave. with It's a rumba clave with the second beat of the of the two two side moved over by an eighth note. It's a classic. The three-two groove was the groove of the day. And uh, it, but what I love about the No Reply is doing the three-two. It's clearly a three-two, and it's a rumba clave. And then at the end of the the last three-two before he goes into the rock groove, he actually uses the lilt on the on the second half of the two to bring in. It's almost a fill where he plays a second snare, which is on the which is on the downbeat, which gives him the rock groove, and he just launches into rock. And he just does it. He does it so well that I've never noticed it. And I've what? How many? I've been listening to this music since I was a kid. Never noticed. Can it. you can that's you, how, um, good, can you demonstrate
0: play. that for us, Christopher? Can you do a little beatboxing to demonstrate this three two and <laughs> oh, the two three? <laughs> no reply. <laughs>
1: I said it once before No reply Uh, Yeah, it's, I mean, it's such a great, such a, they just take it to heaven that song i mean oh, i just wish i could sing like john lennon sometimes it's just he does he nails i know
0: <laughs> oh, some of that i was just listening to some of the songs because i haven't listened to the beatles in years not being an aficionado you know but then today listening to some of the, the harmonies are just extraordinary <laughs> extraordinary and and they just they just jump right out of the speakers don't they
1: yeah, mm. absolutely. Look 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 just for anyone who's listening I'll just I'll just I'll answer the question before anyone asks it. My favorite Beatles record is Magical Mystery Tour and the that and Abbey Road I can listen to continually without any hassle. Um, my cousin Sandra, who was a famous fashion designer, yep, uh, she forced me to sit down when I was just a kid to listen to uh, Sergeant Peppers. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it. I was just a kid. I was just a kid. I know, I was, yeah. I, I, think can, I, was, I can remember, I think I can I remember a hearing
0: a couple of songs off it, but, you know, I was just, I didn't get it at all, at all, you know. We were too young. Nah. Yeah.
1: Too young, uh, but I remember the hype surrounding those records coming out. When the Revolver came out and had that fantastic cover on it, and I used to go down to the record shop and just stare at the cover, this pen drawing that was done. And then Sgt. Pepper's came out, and that was coming out with all this hype, and everyone was going to was going to change the world, and and it came out and it changed the world.
0: <laughs> 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 so can you can you remember um, your first experience of Beatles music?
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah because I I didn't notice I don't think I noticed Please Please Me uh, which is a great tune with the harmonica that is really dim in my memory for some reason Uh, but when it came to uh, She Loves You I think it's the it's the it's the fill at the beginning of the song and then they just they scream they just the joy of the opening line and then then the way the dust settles down so quickly for the verse it's just it's a magnificent power pop song you know it's it is so well. it's, it's the first brit yeah.
0: let's say, let's face it it's the first brit pop song
1: you, I think you're absolutely right yeah, yeah they, they they are yeah they are the they are the original power pop band that's the they're the ones well, have a listen to the White Album, the beginning of uh, "Everyone's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey." It'd been so long since I heard that album. That track came on, and I thought, I thought I'd thrown in another band's track. Mm. I thought, "This is this is modern." What band's this? And then the guy says, "Bloody Paul McCartney." I forgot about this song. This is pure. 90s recorded 25 years earlier you know i'm just going to quickly just go over just some homework um look i've only listened to the first five beatles albums uh to to do the research for this and i found 37 tracks mm-hmm. that have got overdub percussion
0: <laughs> <laughs> what what i'm what i'm amazed about is that in those days that they actually had any extra tracks to overdub onto.
1: Yeah, that's what happened. Or were they, so were they, they bouncing yeah, in
0: those days or were they...
1: D- yeah, they were bouncing, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, they were bouncing. And what was happening, is the earliest records, there wasn't much percussion unless there was someone free to play it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you, as soon as you start hearing two acoustic guitars, a bass and drum kit, and then you hear a little bit, and of course voice, uh, they were bouncing. And the quality was pretty high at that stage, but the earliest records, there wasn't enough quality there. And I don't think they, I don't think they expected them to be the hit that they were. Yeah. So why should they get any more time in the studio? Sure, you want to do some more stuff kid well no we've run out of time here's your bill Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) because because the studio was billing the beatles right through their career by the way (laughs) just so you know (laughs) yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah so uh yeah as as the recording technology got better but apart from the technology getting better the mics they were using and the engineering got better so i don't don't think i'm not sure where what level the four tracks were uh, whether they were making the four tracks better, I do know they were building better preamps. Mm-hmm. They knew how to place the microphones better because they knew that with this band, as they were developing their technique and they were using this technology on other bands as well, they knew they were going to have to dub some parts in. So they did. They did put the parts down. Paul McCartney later. They were still doing four tracks just right up to Sgt. Pepper's. So Paul McCartney took advantage of that. He used to overdub his bass after the band was finished.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Just show and the sound. The sound of those recordings is phenomenal. Mm. It's great. They're great recordings. Mm. And, and there's a there's a lot of factors. It's not just the, not just going to tape, new preamps, new ideas of what microfo- where microphones should be, new new microphones that had come out that were available, uh, new, new, uh, new cabling, young engineers who were willing to do the right thing and, and who had bought some other experience from other countries, uh, touring engineers, Americans who'd come over with ideas and left them behind likewise, because you couldn't just get on the phone and ring a studio in, in, in LA and say, how are you guys recording the drums? Because that was, that was the, the um, that was, what's the term? Proprietary sound. The Proprietary sound—that was their currency. The sound of the studio and the engineers and the preamps—that was their currency. That's how they got the gigs. So you couldn't get on the phone like we look at the internet now. You can find out how does this guy mix. He uses this plugin. He works in this studio. I can book some time. You know, I can go and get. And so none of his stuff is secret. The way he uses it is. Mm -hmm. But he'll even have he'll even have classes if you want to pay two hundred bucks for four hours, and he'll teach you how he uses his stuff. But it, it, so instead of the studio being the, uh, the, uh, the, the the form of currency, the person himself becomes the form of currency. And they've, that's why they're marketing these guys so well. But in those days, the actual studio itself and the people working in it were the currency. So if you listen to the Beatles imitating some of the Latin stuff, they were, they were drenched in reverb. Whereas on the same album, with their rock stuff, they had a different reverb. That was part of the studio. That was a selling point of the studio. I wouldn't have a reverb, you didn't have a reverb, you know, dozens of studios around the world didn't have reverbs, they would use the men's room with a speaker in it, you know? Yeah.
0: They didn't have plates. Or they'd they'd be, I remember, uh, you know, using a a microphone in a stairwell with a a speaker and, you know, getting those particular sounds that you wanted, you know? Absolutely.
1: And all, all those factors, all those factors, there was so many factors contributed to the sound that we can now record a percussion part. And they also knew how to, how to not distort or distort the right way. So you saturate correctly. How hard do we hit the tape? Tape formulations got better. You know, because there isn't anything about magnetism that's kind of changed. The Germans got it right earlier on, but the tapes themselves got better. The actual quality of the material. Oh yeah, and those, those German those, engineers and
0: yeah. the Ampex in America, yeah. Ampex and uh, BASF uh, in Germany, and they were spending a lot of time uh, trying to perfect the sound of uh, that was being recorded on the tape as well. And then engineers were reacting to it by um, knowing how to saturate it to a to an extent that um, would add to the um, you know the warmth of the sound.
1: Correct, mm. and they were building their own compressors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tektronix and the LA2A, uh, the Techtronic LA2A, and the 1176 were developed in Hollywood for film industry. Before that, were everything was a homemade compressor. You can actually buy a reproduction of the Abbey Road compressors now. You can actually buy a physical reproduction. It was available as software for many years, but now there's a company, Chandler, have released. The actual hardware, which does the same thing as this, as the compressors that were re- used on the Beatles records, they were nowhere in, they were nowhere near being automatic. So when you were mixing something, you still had to have your hand on the dial to change characteristics on the compressor as they were as they were doing their mixes. So this is this is a totally different technology. So yeah, when when you say something like the percussion started to appear more often on the later records, yeah, because it was easier for them to record percussion after doing all the stuff because a lot of the stuff that sounded clearer, they were able to get a better better product, recorded sound product. And also, let's not forget this, the Beatles became better arrangers of their own material as they got older. So they left space for the percussion to be overdubbed later. So it doesn't sound out of place because it was meant to be there because they intended it to be there.
0: Ah, oh, Christopher, it's been wonderful. Uh, you've almost converted me. I might listen to some Beatles. You know, you know I me. Mean, I'm, a, I'm a Rolling Stones guy, and you know the, the, you know the story about Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones having to pay Charlie Watts to play with them when they were first starting out because he was such a good oh, drummer. I
1: didn't, I didn't know that. Well, I, I just, I just like my story. The, the Beatles wrote the first Rolling Stones hit. So Mick, Mick, Mick was mates with uh, with John, and uh, and he approached uh, John. And Paul to get a song, they said they needed a hit. So the Beatles wrote them this hit. I think I think they wrote it in an hour. Something one of those really stupid stories. They probably had bits of songs that they and and when they saw them do it and they became a hit. Mick and uh, and um, and and Keith said. Gosh, we can do that. Pretty serious. That's basically how it happened, and that's how it happened. They saw them. They saw them write a hit. They recorded it. Became a hit. And they said, "Well, we, we'll do that. Let's do that as well." Yeah, I think so I think Andrew Lug,
0: Luke Oldham um, actually forced them to do some of that as well. Well, before we get onto our next podcast about the Rolling Stones, we better finish this one. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: <laughs> Is this shirt slimming? What's the um, what's the web? Uh, address for that if you want to send a comment or
0: or question. Or find the Spotify playlist or find some videos as well about all this and it's uh, slimmingly.strikingly.com Okay, we've just hit the 40 minute mark, that's been enough, it's been me and that's been you, goodbye Uh, Goodbye Phil,
1: (laughs) here comes the music